Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 82. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC, and today I'm really happy to bring to you a guest who has been on Therapy Chat before. She's the author of several books and an expert on anxiety and a psychotherapist in Michigan. Dr. Carolyn Deitch is my guest today. Now, you may remember in the episode on managing anxiety, Dr. Deitch came on and talked about how to manage anxiety. She demonstrated her stress inoculation technique and talked about her book, The Road to Calm Workbook. She's also the author of The Affect Regulation Toolbox and Anxious in Love, which is the book we're discussing today. So I think you're really going to enjoy my interview with Dr. Carolyn Deitch. Let's go ahead and get started. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I have a returning guest, someone who I enjoyed speaking with so much last time about managing anxiety, Dr. Carolyn Deitch. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Well, it's a delight to talk to you again, Laura. As I mentioned before, you're a great interviewer and fun to talk to. Oh, you're so sweet to say that. Thank you. That's the truth. I mentioned to you before we started recording that your last interview that we did together is one of my most popular episodes. I think anxiety is a problem for so many people and they're really looking for help with that. So I'm so grateful that you could come back. And today we're going to talk about your book, Anxious in Love. Yeah, I got interested in in that topic many years ago because I found that that People who are anxious often have relationship, and the, actually the research holds me hold, um, corroborates that that people with generalized anxiety disorder, for example, have a higher rate of divorce than other people do, hmm. and that's in large part because people feel like their partners just don't get them, and people who are anxious, who are partnered with people who tend not to have an anxious temperament, 
which frequently happens, um, feels like that their partners experience a fundamentally different experience of life. And the reality is, if you're anxious, and about 20% of people are anxious, and 30% of people have experienced anxiety at some point in their life, it doesn't live in a vacuum. Anxiety can strain the most loving relationship. So I was interested in the patterns of these relationships and, 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 and said yes to uh, writing a book about it. Awesome. So who is your book intended for? Is it for the person who feels anxious or the partner? And can you tell me kind of more about those pairings? Yeah, I can. Good questions. Primarily, it's for the person who's anxious, but there's a whole section on for the non-anxious partner. When I say non-anxious, everybody has anxiety sometimes, but for the person who doesn't have an anxious temperamental style. And, um, and there's a whole appendix. And indeed, in my own practice, when I have somebody who I'm treating for anxiety, I generally invite the partner in with in about six weeks to do some psychoeducation and to help them manage the relationship better. Because from the non-anxious perspective, the experience of the partner just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before about people who are anxious kind of seeking out a partner who has a different temperament from them. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I see, and, and there's certainly men, there are men with anxiety, but I'm talking a little bit more stereotypically because it's three to one women to men have anxiety. And the most common partnership I see is an anxious woman being drawn to, say, especially in the Detroit area, an engineer, or sometimes it's an IT person. And they're drawn to this person because they're, they're fix-it people. Everything has a solution. The partners tend to be pretty chilled, reasonable. It makes the anxious person feel so safe. And for the the um, what I'll call the non-anxious person, often the person who's more anxious is more full of life and connected to feelings, and that's a that's a an appealing quality. But then when they're bonded, and that's usually after about a a year or two of relationship, then there's difficulties. The difficulties come when the person is having an anxious reaction and the non-anxious person typically doesn't get it right. And there's, there's a kind of form of communication that I see over and over and over again. And you may see it among your clients as well, Laura. There's what I call the appeal, the attack, and the retreat. And the appeal is when the non-anxious partner attempts to problem solve by reason. Like, for example, if somebody's afraid of flying, they'll say, you know, I can't believe that you're afraid of flying. You know, you know the statistics. You know it's much more dangerous to drive to the airport than to fly. I can give you the statistics. You're going to be just fine. And But what's happening is the two are speaking different languages. When the non-anxious person is appealing with reason, the other partner is responding from a different part of his or her brain. Essentially, it's the part of the brain that is more mediated by fear, anxiety, being flooded with emotionality. And and those words, those words just don't help. In fact, they hurt. 
they hurt because they the the person um, needing the reassurance is not having attunement and connection, but they're feeling like their partner just doesn't get how terrified they are. And then what happens is that the partner often gets frustrated um, and starts to attack. And after failed attempts to calm the anxiety with reason, they'll get angry and they'll get frustrated. Sometimes they get really rageful. I can't believe that you won't go to my cousin's wedding because you have this ridiculous fear of flying. And then what happens is for the anxious partner, they continue to feel misunderstood, feel like their needs aren't being met, feel like they're being judged or criticized, feeling less control. And both partners feel a sense of isolation and hurt. And then what happens is what I call the retreat. Mm. And the retreat is marked by a lack of interaction, kind of isolation, withdrawing. Both partners feel kind of hopelessness. And that cycle goes on over and over and over again. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I haven't heard it described in the way you just did of the cycle. But it, you know, when I think about clients who have anxiety, especially because, as you know, my clients mostly have trauma. So they tend to walk around with a lot of anxiety. And in certain situations, it really escalates. And their partners tend to be people who aren't comfortable with a lot of emotion. And so they don't, the more anxious partner doesn't feel understood. And also, they kind of turn it inward and say, what's wrong with me? Why am I always so anxious? I know this right. is stupid. And mm-hmm. But it causes a real lack of connection in their relationship when this yeah. has been their cycle for 25 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that's why I think it's really helpful if it's okay with the, the primary client to bring in the partner and, and talk about these different temperamental styles. And one of the interventions that I have is called is is basically having the each partner have a visualization that they of each other's brains. I call it the colors of logic and emotion. And what that is based on is having them, and it's in my book, the whole script for it. A lot of therapists actually read the script to the couple. And what it does is it has the one person, let's say the non-anxious person, imagine the other person's brain. And they have imagined that part of the brain, the amygdala, that I call the kind of red brain, the red brain. And then imagine their own brain that they see as the blue brain. And the blue brain is kind of representative of the neocortex. Mm. And it and in the visualization, they discover that that when one person is talking from his blue brain (laughs) or rational brain, it's not really being heard by the partner's red brain. And so if they do something different, and what is different is to reassure the anxious person, not blame them, not reassure them, but just tell them that they're safe and that they're cared about, they're loved, they're understood. And then the effect of that is the phenomenon I'm sure you've heard of called Mm co-regulation. When when we're feeling anxious and we're with somebody who's calm and kind 
and attentive, our own emotional system cools off. And then when it cools off and we're more relaxed, then we can hear logic. We can hear our own logic. We can hear our partner's logic. But if you start to meet somebody with logic, even in therapy, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You need to start with attunement, connection, caring, lack of shame. And then if a person feels held and understood, that then they're open. They're open for another perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's so, I can really visualize that as you described it. Um, that's really powerful. And for them to understand that, when that amygdala is calling the shots, you know, in the same way, the person who's feeling really anxious isn't able to access their blue brain either. Right. So, you know, they're talking right. to two parts. It's like they're walking past each other without yeah. connecting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the script I have, there's a couple of scripts in, in the Anxious and Love book that, again, the, the partners can read aloud to each other or the therapist can read to mm. the clients for them to get it. And one of the things that is a basic um, relationship tool that, that I teach pretty much everybody is validation. Now, validation is a kind of a portion of active listening that doesn't require agreement with the partner's perspective. So, but what it does do is it gets the person who's having an issue a feeling that the other understands. Like an issue that that comes up in my practice for some reason pretty often is the concern about which school to pick. Mm -hmm. Um, People who are anxious overestimate the likelihood of catastrophes. And they have a really hard time making decisions, much more than people who don't have anxiety. And so when it comes up, when they're getting even a preschool child, but certainly kindergarten, I hear a lot of anxiety because there's a fear that if they don't pick the right school for the child, that um, that there's going to be a negative trajectory throughout this child's life through getting into the wrong college or not getting into the best college. So I'll have I'll have partners where this is the issue. I don't know if that comes up in your practice, but it comes up a lot in my suburban practice here. And again, the person who is kind of not anxious will say, you know, I don't know why you're making a big deal because Noah's, Noah's an easygoing kid. He'll be fine in the public school, the parochial school, the private school. Let's start the public school. It'll be fine. What are you making such a big deal about it? But what I teach the partner is to say, okay, okay, I'll use your name, Laura. Laura, I get it. You really love Noah, and you really want him to have a good opportunity in school. And you're really concerned that if he goes to the wrong school, that it might be, might be hard for him to associate school with being successful and being happy. I get why you're worried. To start there rather than immediately reassuring. And then to say, but are you open to my perspective? From my perspective, I think Noah will be fine wherever he goes. So start with validation. Yeah. So are are these scripts just all through the book? I mean, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that happens in in relationships where one person is anxious, there's um, a lot of over-dependence, okay, um, that partners... Um, who are anxious often want the non-anxious person to take care of a lot of things. Now, some of it depends on how extreme the anxiety is. 
if somebody, say, has panic disorder, they may not be willing to go to the grocery store. So the non-anxious partner takes over a lot of the household responsibilities. If the person with trauma, for example, you deal with a lot of people with PTSD, and they might be fearful of um, being re-triggered in certain situations, and, and partners may wind up going to social events alone. And there's a lot of dependence. Now, sometimes the um, non-anxious partner kind of likes that dependence. It kind of keeps the relationship stable, but it doesn't create the opportunity for growth for the anxious person. What we know in the anxiety field is we, in order to get over a fear, we have to have exposure. So the partner doing everything for the anxious partner actually helps to enable it and maintain the anxiety. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. And I was about to say like, well, what's up with that other person that they, (laughs) they may not have anxiety, but why are they so comfortable just, you know, letting that person be dependent on them? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question. I mean, one of the things that, that we see with people who are non-anxious is that sometimes they were oldest children. Sometimes they come, uh, they, they had a parentified role in the family. Yeah. So this is a very comfortable role for them. And often they feel really kind of a safety in being so needed. Yeah. Family of origin plays a part almost no matter what, I swear. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, there, and, and, and then often if the person does, does it right, there's a lot of appreciation and from the anxious partner that can make, make it kind of unhealthy, but, but close relationship, but not in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things is that that is a tip for the the non-anxious person is to be really encouraging, you know, to say that I know this is going to be uncomfortable for you, but I do know that you've handled discomfort in a lot of different scenarios in your life, and I have every confidence that you can do this. The other thing that happens is that sometimes the partner protects the anxious person and he or she, the non-anxious person, doesn't get sufficient support. So one of the things ah. that, um, that I suggest to the partner is ask for support so that your partner has an opportunity to give to you as well. Another thing that the, the non-anxious partner needs to do is share decision-making. Because people with anxiety have such difficulty on making decisions, they often defer decisions to the partner. And so then you become, it gets to be kind of like a parent-child relationship, which isn't healthy for either of them. Yeah. And I see for the partner who's anxious, again, I think most of the time that would be my client. And that person tends to feel kind of, you know, powerless, especially because in my case, you know, my clients mostly have trauma. So that's kind of a a part of the experience of having been traumatized. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes I'm dependent on them. I can't do anything, but I'm resentful that I have no power in the relationship. And I feel like they're keeping me down or they're being controlling and they don't care about my feelings. They don't understand me. You know, it's a really it's a really harmful dynamic. I think it is a harmful dynamic. And so what the goal is, is kind of finding um, a healthy medium between too much dependence and and sufficient 
interdependence. But if you're getting in a situation where you're relying on your partner's emotional support rather than um, putting your own mask on first and looking to your internal resources to regulate anxiety, you're not going to recover. So, and then if you make the partner rather than yourself responsible for your emotional well-being, um, the partner inevitably is going to fail. And again, there's, it mitigates against growth in the anxious person. So the goal is, is to kind of, on the continuum of dependency, is to be in healthy interdependence. And uh, the sentiment for healthy interdependence is, I have the innate ability to live a rewarding and fulfilling life, and my life is wonderfully enhanced by my partnership with you, but not dependent on my partnership with you. And so we've got to convince the client and the client's partner that the goal is to enhance one's self-autonomy. And how do you do that? Well, you encourage the anxious person to use a lot of self-regulation tools and techniques. Mm -hmm. Some of the tools tools in all of my books um, focus on self-regulation. So I have my clients spend about 20 minutes every morning listening to a recording that I gave them or with mindful meditation, something to um, calm the nervous system down. And then when they're upset, rather than immediately going to the partner to take a time out and self-validate and self-soothe. So what I mean by that is that if you're upset about something, rather than immediately going to your partner, experiment with going into a room, like a timeout room that you've given yourself, maybe your bedroom or a bathroom, and acknowledging that you're frightened and doing some self-validation, saying it makes sense that you're frightened. Your mother was frightened about these things. She modeled fear for you. You did have a bad experience on an airplane. And then just move into compassion for themselves and self-soothing. And then, once I've done some self-soothing, they can ask themselves, what is reasonable, if anything, to ask the partner? So essentially, again, to put your own oxygen mask on first before you immediately catch the partner unaware with a demand that he fix it or she fix it. Yeah. So taking care of ourselves, working on our own affect regulation and soothing before just looking at them pointing finger and saying, you're the problem. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not, oh, you're not care helping me. me at all. Yeah. You're not and in that quiet, you can actually think about what do I need to hear from him or her and, yeah. and just wait for a message and then say to your partner, this is what I would be really helpful to hear from you because you can't really expect somebody else to automatically be psychic about what words you need to hear. Particularly if you're, you have a different style and a different way of looking at the world, a different set of lenses. And there's nothing wrong with saying, these are the words I need to hear from you. Yeah. And I think that takes a lot of inward attention because you have to know what you're wanting and what you're feeling and what feels like it's missing and what would be helpful. Exactly. And I think when we're flooded, it's so hard to even see that or feel it, you know? So a lot of, you're absolutely right, Laura. It's hard to see it. 
Now, a lot of the work that I do with people is catching their reactions and using the timeout repeatedly. The protocol that I have for people, as I mentioned, is to start every day with some kind of um, stress inoculation, some meditation stay or listening to a recording. There's, I have recordings, but there's lots on applications now that you can go from the app store on, on calming techniques. I'm, even my last book, the Road to Calm Workbook, has an app with it. So there's a lot out there where people can spend about 20 minutes. But then the next thing is when they're, they're beginning to have an anxious reaction, to catch it. And you can catch it by just noticing that your breathing is, is escalating or your heartbeat is fast or you're thinking a thought like, I can't stand this anymore or I'm not going to be able to handle it or something really awful is going to happen. It can be a cognitive thought, a physical sensation or a, um, just a state of being on edge, an eff- effective state. And all of these go on concurrently, but some of them are easier to catch for, for different people. And then as soon as you catch it, take a timeout. And in that timeout, you can do some quick things to downregulate. I like to use an eye roll where you roll your eyes up toward your forehead, take a deep breath in, hold the breath for about five seconds, and then exhale and relax the eyes. And then from there, I often use a breathing technique kind of diaphragmatic breathing or mindful breathing, going to a safe place. You've all, you've, I'm sure, used safe place with your clients, having them go to a place where they felt safe and comfortable, maybe by an ocean, using all their senses, and then do some self-talk. And then you can, then you can go into, um, what do I really need? Or moving into compassion for the suffering self. And then going into that and thinking maybe even about the child you were and what you needed to hear that you never got. Sometimes people didn't hear, you can do it. It might be hard, might be scary, you might not like it, but I know you can do it. Or some people were pushed to do things before they were ready, but but most of our parents didn't get it exactly right and we don't get it exactly right with our children. So we can just think about what we needed to hear that we didn't hear. And that can be the sentence we can ask our partner to give us. But it doesn't happen automatically. You need to pause, take a break, and move inside, move to compassion for the anxious self, and then think, what do I need? What do I need? Or maybe I don't need anything right now. Maybe just taking a time out is enough. That is so great. Yeah. I mean, I love the way you really are able to just break it down into steps like that, too, because especially when the person is feeling really overwhelmed, it's it's hard to connect with that. Even the reminder to go to stillness and just take some space and time and and take care of what you need. Right. Right. And And sometimes it can only take as little as 90 seconds. That's not very much. 90 seconds for that amygdala to cool off so that you can move into reason yourself. Now, one of the, th- there's a few things that I like people to do in their timeout, and I can tell you a few of them now. Um, after they've calmed down with the breathing in the safe place and identified the scared part with compassion, then they can do some, some techniques. Um, one of the techniques that I like people to use is what we call in the hypnosis community age regression. And that's when you go back to a time when you were scared 
but you you managed that anxiety that you got through it and it was better it was better than you thought it would be and to go back in time and all of us have experiences when we were scared to give that speech or go away to college or break up that relationship or whatever and we were courageous so we go back to that and then we can say to ourselves we got through that and we can get through this and that's particularly applicable for your trauma clients, Laura, because they got through an awful lot of things mm-hmm. and they survived. They didn't know they were going to survive, but they did. So yeah. I got through that. I can get through this. Then the reverse of that is age progression. Now, people with anxiety have a lot of age progression. They live in the future, specifically what can go wrong in the future. They overestimate the likelihood of catastrophes happening happening. So they're really good at being in the future. But I like to use moving into the future where the anxiety has passed. If it's specifically a panic attack, move into eight, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes into the future when it has subsided, it always does. Or moving into the future, I have a a videotape of a woman who was very afraid about this whole school business. And I had her move into the future when he was in public school and he was doing very, very well. And then I had her move later into the future where she was, they, he was getting his college acceptances and, and he got into some schools he wanted to get into. So moving into the future where the current stressor is over and you've managed it and things have worked out, maybe not perfectly, but better than you expected. So those age regression, age regression are pretty powerful techniques that people can use in the timeout. Then the other one that I use a lot, and I may have spoken to you in the last one about this, is one of my favorites, and that's juxtaposition of two thoughts or feelings. I don't know if you remember me going through that or not, but it's really hard to get rid of anxiety entirely. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can put all your anxious feelings in one hand and hold on to them, and in the other hand, you can access the fact that you can get through difficult things, that you are strong, that you do have internal resources, and you do have external resources. So it's much easier to have the juxtaposition of another frame of mind side by side the anxiety. I'll give you an example of that. Actually, when I came up with it, I was looking at schools with my son in Vermont, and it was icy. And I'm kind of, even though I grew up in Michigan, I'm really a wimp with icy (laughs) weather and um, never loved it. And and we had to go visit some schools and make it to the airport on time. And I'm not famous for my sense of direction. So I was feeling really anxious. And what I got in touch with is that it wasn't reasonable to get rid of all my anxiety because it was true that the roads were unfamiliar. It was true that um, icy roads can be dangerous. It was true that there was we were in kind of time urgency to get to some interviews and get to the airport on time. So it wasn't reasonable to get rid of those fears. But then I moved to another part of me, another part that said, well, I'm going to be driving slowly. So it's likely the worst thing that can happen is a fender bender. If I do get lost, I can pull at a gas station. This was before 
all the Google Maps, actually. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can ask for directions. And if we do miss this flight, we can stay in a hotel and go home tomorrow. So it wasn't that the anxiety totally went away, but it lived side by side with a more reasonable response. And then the anxiety diminished. Didn't totally go away, but it really softened. So the goal, though, was not to get rid of it, but it was to identify it, honor it, and then live it side by side. And I often do that by having people actually use it from put one the anxious thoughts or feelings in one hand and then the um, the coping statements or inner strength in the other hand and bring the hands together and bring them down to the heart and feel feel both concurrently. I love that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not that you have to tell yourself unreasonably not to feel anxious when there is an element of risk. And you don't know what's going to happen. So part of you is saying, but we could get hurt. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or my son could go to the wrong school or whatever it is. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about what you said about age regression. Mm -hmm. When you said that the person goes back to that time, are they saying to themselves in their head, now let me think of a time when this happened where I had an experience where I was really scared and I got through it. Okay, let's see, the first day of kindergarten, you know. Are they thinking it or are they trying to feel it? I think they're doing both. First, they're thinking about it. First, they select an occasion. But then it works better. It's much more powerful if they feel it. Feel that feeling of satisfaction when you went home the first day and you got through it and you made that friends. Maybe you can even imagine the posture you had when you asked your boss for a raise and feel it in your body. Maybe you can replicate that posture right now. So you're seeing it, feeling it at the same time. Good question. Okay. Yeah. And so I would say, of course, for a trauma survivor, don't go to, you know, the traumas that happened and try to think what happened to me then and how, you know, but more like, look how resilient I was after that happened kind of thing. Right, right. A a lot of people with trauma, for example, if they didn't get their needs met at home, I've noticed that people with trauma uh, find other resources. They get close to a neighbor or an aunt or a grandmother. People are really good at finding external resources. And um, so they could remember uh, finding finding those external resources and then remembering they still have that ability to find not only internal resources, but external resources. Yeah. And, and there are resources other than just the partner, too. Well, heck, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Internal and external resources other right. than the partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I like to do, often with people with trauma specifically, is have them um, create an imaginary support group. And the imaginary support group, you have the person relax and This might be something that you might do in your office and record it if you like to record, if you're willing to record so they can listen to it again and um, have them imagine somebody very kind and loving coming up toward them. And this person is wise and calm and soothing and nod your head when that person's there and then invite somebody else. This could be the great grandmother you never met that you heard about. 
or this could be Jesus, or this could be the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa, or this could be your therapist, or this could be your college roommate. It, you can bring anybody, and it could be your golden retriever. And you you assemble all these beings that are living or not living, angels, entities, real people, and just sit in the center of your imaginary support circle and look at them and know that you are not alone. You are not alone. And maybe when you go in to take that bar exam, <laughs> see a lot of people with test anxiety. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that imaginary support circles walking in in front of you and you are not alone. You are not alone. And that's a particularly good one. I I have that script written in my first book, Accurate Regulation Toolbox, and I could send it to you too. Um, I've got that one. You've got that one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And um, that's a really good one to remember that – that we we all have resources. We have internal resources that we overlook, and we have external resources. And one of those resources can be our partner, but it's unrealistic to feel that you're going to get it all from one person every time, particularly if that one person is different than us. And and one of the things that that um, I wanted to sort of summarize that or attitudes that are important in all relationships is you really have to teach people that they, they need to acknowledge and demonstrate agency in managing their own emotions, that it's up to them first. The other thing, the other attitude that I try to inculcate is that they can accept, even find satisfaction in the not perfect, but good enough relationship. People also need to develop the attitude that they let go of the illusion of fairness. Things are not always fair in relationships. And also let go of the need to be right. That's a pretty big one in relationships. When your partner does get it right, acknowledge it right away. That felt really, really good. Kind of seal the deal with gratitude. And again, summarizing just takeaway points for the anxious person is, Really encourage them to take time timeouts. As soon as they catch it, they won't always catch it. Sometimes it comes on so quickly they won't catch it. But make an intention to catch it. Catch those thoughts. Catch those feelings. Then in that timeout, do some things to to downregulate or calm. And then in that place, contact the more mature parts of the cell um, before you go to the partner. I mean, the first thing is you you have to acknowledge and demonstrate agency in your own ethic regulation. Essentially take responsibility that you need to do it. Yeah, because that, I mean, I feel like that's such a developmental task. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, if you never got that when you were growing up, there's still a chance to do it. But that's part of becoming a mature person. You're exactly right. And what we see in our practices is either we see people who didn't get enough, like they didn't get enough um, reassurance and comfort, so they they didn't develop an internal interject to get it, or they got too much. Mm. That's what I've been seeing now in the next generation, is de- that anxious young people are depending too much on their parents mm-hmm. to get it, so they don't develop that ability to self-soothe. They text mom five times a day from their college campuses every time they get stressed. So... 
usually it's an issue of getting not enough or getting too much. Thank you. That is, all of this is so interesting and so important. I think this is again going to be one of those episodes that people are going to love listening to because you just share so much rich information and you know so much about this topic of anxiety and how to help people with anxiety. Well, I love working with it because because people really do get better. Yeah. Almost it doesn't have to be like that better. forever. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very gratifying that most of the people I see, if they do the work, get better. Well, Carolyn, it's been a pleasure having you back on Therapy Chat today. I feel like we'll have to talk again in the future, but can you tell people where they can find you and your wonderful books and your recordings and all the many great oh, things Oh, thank you, you for asking that. It's www.carolyndhphd.com. Great. And uh, that's probably, and my email is, yeah, it's carolyndhphd, all one word, dot com. And my email address is carolyn, C-A-R-O-L-Y-N, dot dh at me, M-E dot com. All my books are on Amazon and um, are relatively inexpensive. And the last one, The Road to Calm Workbook, has an, a recording on it and an app. <laughs> so um love to share my materials with other people. Yeah. So thanks again. Laura, once again, you're great to talk to. You make it easy for me. Well, thank you. And I'll say um, to everyone who's listening, uh, I have the Road to Calm workbook and it's wonderful. But I just remembered about the app again when you were talking about it. And while we were talking, I downloaded it real quick and it's super great. I love it. I mean, I haven't obviously used it, but I see all that it has on it. And I think it's a great compliment to the workbook. So, you know, everybody loves a good app and putting it together with the workbook and all your other stuff. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I felt like I had to move into this period of time and do an app because (laughs) my younger clients don't know what a tape recorder is and often they don't know what a CG player is. I had to move forward. There you go. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Carolyn Dage. She is so knowledgeable about anxiety and what helps with anxiety. This is really her specialization and it shows she has so many techniques she can just like pull from the top of her head. Whether you're a therapist or someone who struggles with anxiety, her books are really great resources. The Road to Calm workbook is written for anyone who has anxiety and it focuses a lot in mindfulness and self-regulation techniques and there are recordings that come along with it and there's even an app. As I said in the episode, I really, I just downloaded the app and I thought it's really good. You can also go back and listen to episode 29 if you'd like to hear my first interview with Carolyn back from April 2016. I thought that one was really interesting too and it's been very popular. I think a lot of people have found it helpful. As always, please visit iTunes to leave a rating and review and subscribe so you can receive all the latest episodes. I'm so appreciative to all of you who listen, and I love hearing your feedback on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook, and you can go to therapychatpodcast.com and send me a message or leave me a message through SpeakPipe. I love when people do that. I love hearing your voices. Until next time, thanks for listening to Therapy Chat. Talk to you soon. 
Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hey, it's Laura Reagan again. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more in depth about therapy notes. Now, if you've been listening to Therapy Chat for a while, you might remember last summer when I was doing the practice building series for therapists, I interviewed Brad Pliner, who's the CEO of Therapy Notes in episode 43, and he talked about why therapists need practice management systems and the specific benefits of using Therapy Notes. So if you're thinking about it, that would be a great episode to check out. I'm currently using it in a trial period. Even though I loved my other practice management system that I've had for going on four years, I was finally persuaded to switch to therapy notes. I think it's going to add a lot of value to my business and be cost effective for me in the long run. You can get 10% off 12 months of therapy notes service using the promo code CHAT17. The first month of service, including claims, ERAs, and appointment minders, is completely free. So you get a free month and 10% off 12 months of service. So hope you'll check it out. Hey, this is Laura Reagan. You may have heard my therapy chat interview with Charlotte Heiler Easley, LCSW, who's an EGALA and PATH certified psychotherapist offering equine assisted psychotherapy in Lexington, Kentucky, which aired last fall. Charlotte is doing beautiful work and I loved our conversation. In fact, it motivated me to begin spending time mounted and unmounted with horses and I've been in love from the first moment. If you've been following Therapy Chat, you've probably heard some of my discussions about this in November and December of 2016. And if you missed our interview, you can listen by going to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and look for episode 56. That interview was very powerful for many people. And based on that, Charlotte and I have decided we want to offer two day-long retreats here in Maryland, combining my work with hers. So one day will be for therapists, and the other day is for anyone who wants to connect deeply within. Both days, we will be journeying inward to connect with ourselves and make connections with one another using elements of the daring way together with Charlotte's EAP work. We already have the dates. All we need is to finalize the location and then we will be opening registration. So if you're excited about this, please email me at laura at lauraregan.lcswc.com or go on therapychatpodcast.com and you will see a link to contact me and I can add you to the list 
to be notified when registration opens. And mark your calendars because the dates are September 15th and 16th, 2017 here in Central Maryland. Each of the two retreats are limited to eight participants, and I hope you'll join us. Also, if you're in Maryland, you may be interested in my weekly Daring Way group for women, which begins May 25th, 2017 in Severna Park in my office. Groups will meet Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 5.30 for 10 weeks. If you're interested in possibly participating, contact me at laura at lauraregan.lcswc.com and I'll give you the details. There's a screening process to ensure best fit and group is limited to six people. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.